Welcome, everyone. This is the Reorienting Faith class, and we're really glad that so many people have been able to stay on and join. And this is the last of four sessions that we've had on Reorienting Faith. So the first one was about locating ourselves on the Reorienting Faith path. Um, and then the second one was Rethinking Hell. The third one was um, on the fallacy of saying the Bible says so and exploring like the multivocal view of scripture. Um, and today we're going to be rethinking sex and purity. So the notes for all of those sessions are uh, on the website and um, I'm going to put the link in the chat, but um, they're on the website and it has their own tab. So it's under the resources tab mm -hmm. and then you can see it as reorienting faith. Um, so with that, uh, Ken, take it away. Thank you. Okie dokie. Thanks, Caroline. Uh, wow, I worked, I worked really hard on this presentation. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very tender subject for many people. Purity culture uh, is something that was invented by modern evangelicalism. The term that is, uh, it, it came into um, kind of uh, its branding existence, I think in 1990 with the advent of purity rings, which were rings presented to young people to signify a pledge to refrain from all sex before marriage and from all non-heterosexual sex forever. Purity culture has caused uh, great anguish. Its, its main proponent uh, has renounced it. Even if you haven't been affected uh, by this, someone you know surely has. So understanding where it comes from and how it misuses scripture, which is going to be my main focus today, can can really be helpful. You know, if, uh, when topics are stressful, uh, one little helpful thing I learned is um, if you can walk and listen at the same time or be physically active, it can actually, it, it can actually help. So that's a, that's a tip from my experience. Um, there, so there are long antecedents to evangelical uh, purity culture in Western Christianity. In Catholicism, for example, Mary is revered as morally pure, which means uh, in that context without the taint of original sin because she is ever virgin. Augustine taught that original sin was transmitted by sexual intercourse. So you can see how that, how that fits into purity culture. The 1968 uh, papal encyclical, very high uh, standing of authority within the Catholic Church called Humanae Vitae, Vitae on Human Life, uh, the subtitle is On the Regulation of Birth, taught that married sex without the explicit intention of creating new life is only justified for grave reasons. So the only acceptable way to limit conception uh, is called natural family planning, requires only having sex during the days in a woman's cycle when she has the least biological drive to do so. Many sexual acts not leading to intercourse are prohibited in this teaching. So there's a long um, tradition of, of this in the, especially the Western Christian tradition. All of this comes um, from a male, mostly white cisgender hierarchy. So it, I just want to acknowledge it could be triggering to have someone from this precise demographic, AKA me, address the topic. So I thought it'd be helpful if I briefly sketched the outlines of this, this presentation. So, you know, if for any reason it doesn't sound helpful to you, um, I'll take no offense if you prefer to leave the Zoom. Um, so I'll do a quick preview of the main topic, 
then a few preliminaries, then on to our main topic. I'm thinking this will take about 30 minutes or so. So preview of the main topic. I have uh, three goals in this presentation. First, to demonstrate that 1 Corinthians, the letter that is most used to buttress the claims of purity culture, doesn't in fact do so. Second, to demonstrate that the purity part of purity culture is a very substantial distortion of the ancient Jewish understanding of purity. And then third, to suggest that when selecting from values rooted in scripture, purity is really badly suited for developing an ethic for human sexuality. And that other values like justice and wisdom, maybe even joy, have more to offer. So I, I will not offer specific opinions on the specifics of a sexual ethic to replace the purity of rules. So we, we need to hear a lot more from women and queer people on such matters, and a lot less for maybe the next 1,000 years from straight cis men. So in my original notes, I put 100 years. I sent them to my, my uh, daughter, Amy. She's a really good editor, and she crossed out 100 and put 1,000. I texted back to her, and I thought I was so woke putting in 100 years. <laughs> that was funny. Anyway, so some preliminaries on interpreting scripture as a source of reflection on sexual ethics before we get to the main body of our uh, topic. First, all scripture needs to be interpreted. That means even widely accepted interpretations may be and have been wrong. Uh, it's perfectly legitimate to disagree with or even protest various interpretations of scripture, especially when it's evident that the interpretation causes harm. It's pretty clear in this case. Two, I don't for a moment believe scripture teaches that God punishes temporal sins with infinite torments. This um, version of the hell doctrine functions as a kind of sword of Damocles in the purity culture teaching. Uh, my daughter Amy also suggested I not use the term sword of Damocles because it was esoteric. But when I looked it up, because when, when it came to my mind, I, didn't re I realized I didn't actually know what it was. Uh, I found out that it's uh, based on a myth or a story. I think the king, a king presents his subject sets him up with this like feast before him and it's like oh wow what a great thing and then the sword of damocles like a knife that is suspended over the poor guy in front of the feast and it's hanging by like uh, the thinnest of threads and i thought wow what an apt uh picture for this topic third uh, uh preliminary consideration related to scripture the commands the instructions the laws the rules the prohibitions regarding any area of life, including uh, sex, are presented very differently in scripture than in modern law codes. So the instructions in scripture are always embedded in a narrative, in a story. So even the laws of Leviticus, a book in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, that has more laws than any other book, are part of a story, a storyline. When it was time for the Israelites to build the tabernacle, God said to Moses, thus and so. So the, the laws are all part of a story. Yeah, and that means especially to make meaning of these kinds of instructions, we have to consider the historical cultural context. Uh, many, many interpreters ignore this and assume that all the ethical instructions uh, are automatically moral absolutes if they're found in scripture and that, that they apply in every culture across the ages. 
Um, of course, that breaks down for even very conservative readings and, and it's not consistently applied in any tradition, but, but it is asserted frequently nonetheless. So preliminaries, on to our main topic, which is what 1 Corinthians actually says about sex and how purity culture um, misuses that. So 1 Corinthians is the letter to Paul of Paul that people most appeal to when teaching about sexual purity. 1 Corinthians was written primarily to non-Jews who were learning to worship the God of Israel owing to their, they were drawn to uh, the synagogues by the message of Jesus, by the, uh, by the Jewish uh, followers of Jesus, Paul being, you know, the very, very famous one. And 1 Corinthians is actually part of a correspondence in which Paul is answering questions posed by the Corinthians in a letter or letters that we don't have access to. So reading 1 Corinthians is like, it's like stumbling into a conference where the speaker is doing the Q&A and you can only hear their answers because no one is giving the microphone to the questioners. So uh, 1 Corinthians also, when it addresses anything pertaining to sex, is nowhere near a comprehensive or even wide-ranging treatment of sexual ethics. And of course, all communication is profoundly shaped by cultural and historical context. And that's even more true in, in a letter. And the context of 1 Corinthians is so far removed from our own, making interpretation all the more challenging and tentative. So while 1 Corinthians has arguably more to say about sex than any other book in, in all of Scripture, I think, its focus actually on that topic is quite narrow. So of 16 chapters in the letter, only three that I'm aware of include any instructions related to, to sex. And that itself, I think, is telling. So that apparently, this is not a, a topic that warrants a comprehensive treatment in Scripture, which you really can't find. Um, Caroline Kittle and her, her youth team have offered a few times a curriculum on sexuality for youth. It's called um, Our Whole Lives. It's developed by the by UCC denomination, and it's actually UCC was the first historically um, affirming LGBTQ affirming denomination. And that curriculum is way more comprehensive than anything in Scripture. So what are these three chapters um, that address the question, say, about sex? It's 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. So 1 Corinthians 5 deals with a single instance of an egregious incest violation. A Corinthian Christian is having sex with his father's wife and is bragging about it. So Paul's dealing with that in 1 Corinthians 5. The next chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, deals with um, lawsuits between church members, nothing to do with sex. It also deals with the ethics of sex with prostitutes. It's focused on, on men having sex with prostitutes. 1 Corinthians 7 deals with marital sex and how it is ethically uh, superior uh, than sex, having sex uh, with prostitutes. So. The purity rules of purity culture hinge on an understanding of the Greek word. The New Testament was written in, in Greek, kind of a, a 
called Koine Greek, uh, kind of a street Greek, if you will. And the word is uh, porneia. This is a word that is used in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. And evangelicals tend to define it as porneia as all sexual acts outside of the marriage between one man and one woman. Scholars of the period who are, you know, familiar with the literature of, of the period when the New Testament was written, like Sarah Rudin, say that porneia refers to prostitution with the related terms porne and pornos referring to female and male prostitutes, respectively. By the way, the, the condemnation of prostitution is not aimed at the prostitutes themselves, who in that time period were usually slaves. And as Rudin points out, Paul's condemnation of prostitution was likely connected to the brutality suffered by uh, prostitutes. Older English translations use fornication to translate uh, porneia. Uh, later ones use the, the non-specific and rather unhelpful term immorality or sometimes sexual immorality. And this is kind of revealing how um, the translators are struggling with uh, the term for various reasons. But, but Sarah Rudin says the steady meaning of porneia in polytheistic literature, which is the literature of this period, is prostitution or whoring is another term she uses. Rudin also describes how difficult it is to define marriage in antiquity. Um, slaves, for example, big percentage of the population couldn't get married. The, the, the forms of marriage, the terms of marriage tended to differ according to social class. So it was a much more complex system in that period. There, were, there was an array of committed sexual unions in, in that period. We also know, for example, in ancient Judaism, polygyny, um, that is a man being allowed to have multiple wives or wives and concubines, as King David did and others, was allowed, including evidence for the practice in the early church. So it's not quite as simple as uh, culture likes to, likes to assume. So claiming scriptural warrant for the central claim of purity culture, that is all sexual acts outside of marriage defined as between one man and one woman, is bogus. So that's problem one. Problem two is framing sexual ethics under the rubric, under the umbrella theme of purity is especially unwarranted in the context of ancient Judaism. Now, by the way, that term ancient Judaism refers to the form of Israelite religion up to and including the era of Jesus and Paul. Paul and Jesus were operating within ancient Judaism. So to put a sexual ethic under uh, the, the banner of purity really demonstrates ignorance of how the purity code worked in ancient Judaism. Many uh, Christian scholars, let alone pastors, are very poorly informed about purity in ancient Judaism. Well, how could that be possible? Well, uh, one scholar uh, said that uh, as, as recently as 150 years ago, there was only one document outside of scripture 
that described purity code codes or, or had said anything about the ancient Near East, only one document outside of scripture itself that addressed these questions from life in the ancient Near East, where, is, uh, where ancient Judaism is situated. Today, there are over a million documents. So in the last 150 years, there's just been an explosion of, of archeological discoveries that inform scholars about this area. Uh, so many uh, Christian scholars are simply uninterested in the complexities of Israel's approach to purity. And they assume incorrectly that Jesus and Paul actually nullified the ritual purity laws, even for Jewish disciples of Jesus. So Jewish scholarship on this topic is largely ignored by uh, Christian scholars, and it's actually not a major, uh, major interest even within, within Judaism. So it's kind of a, a newly developing field within biblical scholarship. Uh, Jewish scholars who are aware of these uh, relatively recent findings point out the following things about ancient Jewish approaches to purity. First thing is that all cultures of the ancient Near East, Egypt, Persia, Babylon, etc., they all had priesthoods, they all had temples, they all had sacrifices, they all had prohibited foods, and they all had purity codes. And, and when these scholars compare Israel's purity code to the purity codes of the neighboring nations, again, through documents that are only recently available, relatively speaking, it's pretty clear that Israel's purity code represents a much simpler approach to purity and impurity. And the scholars think it represents a very significant reform of how purity was used in a society. And, it, and it's a reform in the direction of not employing purity codes to accuse or marginalize groups of people. So that, that I think is significant. Second thing that these scholars point out is that in ancient Judaism, ritual purity has nothing to do with sin. It's really, really important to understand. In ancient Judaism, ritual purity rules had nothing whatsoever to do with sin. In fact, the only sin related to ritual purity was that if you went into the temple without dealing with your ritual impurity, that was sin, but it was relatively easy to deal with your ritual impurity. So impurity was caused by contact with certain naturally occurring things, corpses, genital discharges, blood, that sort of thing. And purity was conceived of as almost like a, a force that had, had the power, if it, enough of it in, accumulated, if enough impurity accumulated, it had like the power to drive the divine presence out of the temple. So that's why uh, ancient Judaism is concerned with this. But it's important to realize that ritual impurity would only render a person temporarily impure, which simply meant they had to undergo purification before entering the temple. So nothing to do with sin. Uh, ritual purity is concerned to respect sacred space, much as we, we think it's offensive to traipse mud into a clean carpet, especially in someone else's home. Mary Douglas defines impurity as matter out of place. 
So matter's not sinful, it's matter out of place. So in fact, it was understood that Israelites had a moral obligation to do things that would re render them ritually impure, like burying the dead and, and other things. So ritual impurity wasn't sinful and it wasn't focused on sex. Third thing is that a, a very limited number of offenses in ancient Judaism are treated as the holiness code, it's called, so from some chapters in Leviticus. Some of these matters are regarded by scholars as a, as a form of moral impurity, though that term actually isn't used in scripture. The main ones were idolatry, bloodshed, and incest. Um, these were offenses so egregious that left unchecked, they could drive God's presence out of the Holy Land. So ritual impurity related to the temple was driving God's presence out of the temple, but this other form of impurity could drive God's presence out of the Holy Land. While the ritual impurity code applied only to Israelites and mostly priests um, regarding their temple service, this other code that I'm referring to applied to Israelites and Gentiles, non-Israelites living in the land. So for that reason, it was of special interest to Paul, who was the Jewish apostle to the Gentiles, when he was trying to figure out what, what parts of Torah, what parts of God's instruction applied to the non-Jewish uh, followers of Jesus who are now uh, wanting to worship the God of Israel, which is like this brand new thing going on in the Jesus movement. Fourth thing, this is great. Uh, here's a gem from Mary Douglas, who is absolutely the go-to scholar on ancient purity codes. Highly respected by all the Jewish scholars uh, on this area. Mary Douglas says, purity codes provide a means of social control, but ironically, and I'm quoting directly now, the more fragile a society's control system, the more the community is afraid of its own collapse and the less able to discipline its members by physical coercion. This is the context in which accusations of impurity flourish. In other words, um, this obviously applies to purity culture. When male dominance is uncontested in a society, Douglas is saying, purity codes are actually less prominent. They're less emphasized. It's when male dominance is contested in a society that forces in society that are threatened by this emphasize purity codes as a means of social control. I found that very, very helpful. So all of this complex and nerdy background, that's pretty much the end of the nerdiest part of the talk, by the way, <laughs> all this complex and nerdy background about ancient Judaism regarding purity it's actually essential for properly interpreting Paul's writings. Why? Well, because Paul was an ancient Jew. And as a Pharisee, the ins and outs of the Leviticus purity code were like really important to the Pharisees. Remember, the three most egregious sins prohibited in Leviticus, and these were prohibitions that applied to Israelites living in the land and non-Israelites living in the land, uh, were murder, incest, and idolatry. So Paul taught that Gentile Christians were not obligated to fulfill the whole law, 
the, the Torah. Um, but these grave matters were binding on non-Jews living in the land of Israel. And so they, they were like, he used that to uh, give him some perspective on what to require of the Gentile uh, converts to faith in Israel's God through Jesus. So Paul addresses the man committing incest and bragging about it in 1 Corinthians 5. Can you see he's reflecting Torah's abhorrence of incest in Leviticus, which is included in the, the most egregious sins that left unchecked can drive the divine presence from the land of Israel. There's a, just a very lengthy section in Leviticus with various incest prohibitions. Our society also roundly condemns incest, while not defining it exactly the same way as it is in ancient Judaism. There are some differences, but on the whole, pretty similar. Uh, so that makes sense of 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is inveighing against men having sex with prostitutes a practice that was closely tied in that period to idolatry. Um, idolatry is the root of all evil in Jewish moral logic. Again, this is another one of the big three sins in the category with murder and incest, murder, incest, and idolatry. And it's also one, Sarah Rudin points out, that uh, often involved brutality. Said that the, 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 the slaves who were forced to be prostitutes were often treated with, with very uh, grave brutality. So in other words, Paul is writing as an ancient Jew would about such things. He's using an ancient uh, moral logic that many Christian scholars, let alone pastors, haven't done their homework to understand. So purity culture, by contrast, is really like laser focused on premarital sex which actually Paul doesn't even address explicitly in his writings. Well, why wouldn't he address that? Well, in his world, females were often betrothed to a man before puberty, and they were only married, the marriage was only consummated shortly after puberty. So there was no like long period of fertility before marriage for parents to worry about. Remarkably, this is something that was kind of scandalous to the rabbis, many of whom thought Song of Songs didn't belong in the canon. Uh, I think in ancient Judaism, you weren't supposed to read the Song of Songs until you achieved the age of 30. But remarkably, in Song of Songs, which is an erotic love poem in, in the Hebrew Bible, it involves two young people who don't seem to be married. In other words, the concerns about sex in ancient Judaism seem different than our modern religious preoccupations. So once again, glib assertions of the Bible says is often a sign the speaker hasn't done their homework in studying the Bible. To sum up, and we're, we're heading for the barn here, purity is arguably the least helpful way to frame sexual ethics, the least justified by appeal to scripture. Uh, sure, it has, a, it has a biblical ring to it because the Bible is from the ancient Near East where purity codes were universal, but many Christian scholars, let alone pastors or youth leaders or other unqualified people who write Christian books are woefully ignorant regarding the complexities 
and the meaning of ancient Jewish purity codes. I mean, I've, I've only understood them like in the last year when I've been a, doing a deep dive into studying this uh, rather arcane <laughs> area, I guess, you know, it's like, it's like, what do you do in uh, quarantine? So purity, in other words, mainly functions as a kind of buzzword. Of course, there are so-called ethical experts, most of whom haven't read more than an introduction to ethics, if that, who warn us that if we don't do as they say, we are abandoning scripture, and thus we're sure to slide down the slippery slope to, if it feels good, do it. Just because they have the biggest media megaphones doesn't mean they get to set the terms for employing values derived from scripture in developing ethics regarding sexuality, though. You know, there, there are other ways to uh, try to include scripture in your understanding of sexual ethics. For example, there are two prominent values in scripture that can be very helpful, I think, for ethical reflection regarding sex. And I'll just mention two of them, no specifics, just these two lenses to use in uh, ethical discernment regarding sex. Justice is, is a lens for ethical discernment. David Gushy, who'll be speaking, who'll be come visiting us May 15th, will be speaking at uh, our hybrid service. David Gushy's Introduction to Christian Ethics just came out, I'm reading it now, has a great chapter on how evangelicals dethrone justice as the central norm of the Hebrew Bible and the teaching of Jesus. This norm is barely recognized in purity culture, and yet justice has to do with how we treat others. Do we respect their dignity as those who bear the image of God? Do we treat them fairly? Do we avoid oppressing them? Do we take advantage of them? How, how do we relate to power dynamic differences? You know, maybe justice is downgraded in evangelicalism because it undermines the rule of men over women, which conservative Christianity seems dug in to preserve, at least in some vestige uh, state. So justice as a value within scripture you know, it, it can't be boiled down to universal moral absolutes unaffected by culture and historical context. And this may make it less appealing to those with a strong need for certainty. You know, a little thought, and we can see that what is considered just can vary from one cultural or historical context uh, to another. You know, in, in some cultures, it's considered just for parents to choose a marriage partner for their children. In others, that, that would be like really unjust. In ancient Israel, it was considered just for a 30-year-old man to take even a 12-year-old girl as his wife. In our time, that would be criminal. But even within scripture itself, what is considered just changes. So Abraham married his half-sister, Sarah. This is forbidden in Torah explicitly. In one period, of the Hebrew Bible, accumulating wealth is a sign of like unmixed blessing. Whereas Jesus in Luke 16 says it, it, it can be, calls it an abomination. So uh, perhaps even more troubling for white or European Christianity is the insistence of justice that ethics requires examining power and the implications of power over 
others are best understood from below. That's a quote from, uh, from David Gushy. So while the specifics of justice may involve, principles of justice are more stable, such as when we consider our actions, we need to take into account their impact on those directly affected and on the community as a whole. So in scripture, justice especially re relates to the problem of oppression. The worst corruption of a judge in the Hebrew Bible is to fail to rule on behalf of the oppressed. So judges in that period were not just umpires, they were agents of justice, especially for the oppressed, protecting from the oppressed, from the powerful in their rulings. The helpful thing I think about justice as a lens for ethical discernment in the matter of sexual ethics is that justice is, it's like a muscle we exercise, so to speak, in, in all our dealings with others, including how we express ourselves sexually. And it's not like a special set of virtues that only apply to, to sex. So then wisdom would be a second lens for ethical discernment. And wisdom is a different ethical mode than justice. So wisdom in the Hebrew Bible is, is imagined as a divine feminine presence delighting in the creation, um, delighting especially in humans and as well as the other creatures, uh, desiring their flourishing and advising them. So the counsel of wisdom always takes into account our humanity, both its possibilities, but also its limits. So wisdom is, is realistic and not idealistic. Now, justice would be more idealistic. Wisdom, though, is, is marked by being realistic. That is, it takes into account the actual potentials and limits of our humanity. It also, it's also uh, wisdom in the Bible is highly situational. So wisdom is pictured as like dancing with us, like adjusting her moves to ours and adjusting our moves to her. I think that it's like the difference between using a map for directions when you're trying to get somewhere or driving with a GPS. I don't know, does anyone use GPS? I think all these apps like use GPS though, right? I'm, I might be totally out of date. Anyway, the GPS like remains calm and non-judgmental when we make a turn that takes us farther from our destination and says recalculating. So in a way, wisdom is adjacent to more like science. It's more of a research-based approach because it's concerned with observing and taking into account cause and effect actions and their consequences. So what I'm saying is I think these two lenses which can be derived from scripture or elaborated in scripture can be quite helpful in developing uh, sexual ethics. I'm sure there are others which are variously helpful or unhelpful. I think joy is, is, is a great lens in scripture uh, that pertains to this. You could include covenant as, as another, but uh, a little postscript here, speaking of helpful or unhelpful lenses derived from scripture. Uh, patriarchy is another lens found in scripture. Patriarchy, the rule of men over women, was prominent and pervasive in the ancient world. Uh, scripture is a product of the ancient world, and so you see lots of examples of patriarchy in scripture. It's prominent in our world. As patriarchy gets undermined 
in the modern world. Defending a, like a weakened form of it seems like a goal of purity culture and related approaches to sexuality. And I think it's just worth our being aware of that. I think we'd agree that patriarchy is a bad lens to use because there's so much evidence of its bad, actually horrific fruit that is tied to uh, patriarchy. It's just undeniable. Also, the rule of men over women actually violates values like justice and wisdom that are, that are derived from scripture. And despite the fact that much in scripture is influenced by ancient patriarchy and actually reflects it, we also find within scripture the seeds of patriarchy's eventual defeat. So a little postscript on can't talk about sexual ethic without talking about patriarchy. So that's it. I'm done. <laughs>